Sentire Media. Hello, you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Recap 7, episodes 137 to 160. We started off this round of episodes looking at an unusual geographical entity in Italy, the Republic of San Marino. This is considered to be the oldest still existing republic in the world which can trace its origins all the way back to the year 301, when it was founded by St. Marinius on Mount Titan, around 15 kilometers from the Adriatic Sea. St. Marinius came to Italy from Dalmatia and then fled to the mountains to escape persecution for his Christian faith and for preaching the gospel. In this time, he apparently also befriended a bear who had eaten his donkey. Before dying, he was supposed to have declared that the community that he had founded on Mount Titan was free from both men, meaning the Pope and the Emperor, a declaration he possibly never actually made, but on which the inhabitants would found their fiercely guarded independence. The settlement remained a religious one until about the 9th century, when we have the first mention of a castle. It is around this time that San Marino won its first legal battle for its juridical identity. Indeed, to solve a dispute between San Marino and the Bishop of Rimini over the property of lands, a judge was called in and decided in favour of the Republic. It is after this period that more civil buildings and walls were built and lands were expanded. During the communal period, San Marino also started to elect consuls, along with legislative bodies made up of the most important families. When the clashes between Guelphs and Ghibellines raged in Italy between the early 13th and early 15th centuries, at the time of Frederick II in the mid-13th, San Marino was Ghibelline, so with the emperor, and was even hit with an anathema from the pope. You will remember that's not some kind of nasty disease, it just means that they could not practice any religious functions in the republic. These same centuries saw the republic pull off a delicate balancing act between greedy neighbours, namely the papal states, the Montefeltro of Urbino, and the hated Malatesta of Rimini. The latter were seen as the arch-enemies of San Marino, while the Montefeltro were generally friendly. Pope Nicholas V also tried to subjugate San Marino, sending a legate in 1291, and once again the issue was resolved with a juridical decision in favour of the Republic. This happened again soon under Pope Boniface VIII. Things were not always solved with legal proceedings. Indeed, in 1463, San Marino participated in an anti-Malatesta league with Pope Pius II. This coalition won, and the Malatesta were reduced to only Rimini. 
However, when the Pope wanted to take also Rimini, the idea of being surrounded on all sides by the Papal States made San Marino switch sides and help the Malatesta see off the Papal siege. Finally, 1491 saw the status of the Republic and its independence recognised by all of its neighbours. It remains an independent country to this day, having been subjugated briefly in 1403 by Cesare Borgia and in the 1730s by the Papal States and in 1944 by the Nazis. After our little trip to San Marino, we started off once again on our circuit of Italy, starting with Sardinia and Sicily. In Sardinia, the last independent judicate had fallen at the beginning of the 1400s to the Aragonese, and so the century was one of consolidation, putting down rebellions and administrative and political developments. The Spanish monarchs would rule the island using a viceroy, which the local nobility went along with, exhausted from almost a century of the conquest, economic crisis and the Great Plague of 1348 and general depopulation. There was a delicate balance between the Sardinian nobility, the new Aragonese nobility and the cities with their thirst for independence, such as Cagliari or Alghero, for example. These were left to govern themselves, more or less, as long as they behaved and didn't kick out the royal delegate assigned to them. There were only three feudal lords who had the right to convene outside of a parliament. These were the Marquis of Oristano and the Counts of Quira and Oliva. As far as the great feudal families were concerned, there were actually three overriding powers the Cubello and Carrots families, who were both related to the Centelles, a situation which kept any factional rivalry from breaking out into open conflict, helped also by the presence of the royal viceroy. This balance lasted until 1470, when a succession crisis pushed the pile of cards over and ensuing wars would see the Aragonese crown take more direct control over the island of Sardinia, and then guide it out of the Middle Ages. That brought us to the other of the two major Italian islands, Sicily. Here, things were different from Sardinia since the island had been a direct possession of the crown of Aragon since the uprising of the Vespers in the late 13th century, although it had been ruled by a viceroy, usually a son of the Spanish monarch. The influence of this royal representative had always been kept in check by the great power of the local barons, who also managed to keep the growing middle class of merchants, bankers, lawyers and notaries out of the halls of power. This changed a little under the reign of King Alphonse V of Aragon, the magnanimous, who left more room for manoeuvre for the middle classes but it was still the barons through the parliament who could decide whether or not the king would be allowed the donatives when the time came. So a complicated balance was reached between the king and viceroy, the barons and the middle classes, which would at times tip one way or the other. On an economic level, Sicily and Sardinia benefited from being along the trade route from Spain through the Balears and to the Italian islands, and then to the mainland, 
and Sicily continued its role as the grain basket of Italy. Increasing threats from North African and Turkish pirates was one of the elements that led to increasing religious fervour and a desire for a crusade, with the nasty side effect of the massacre of 360 Jewish men, women and children in Modica in 1474. Speaking of the Aragonese, it was in 1443 that they managed to get their hands also on the Kingdom of Naples, since Queen Joanna II of Naples had first nominated Alphonse of Aragon as her heir, then changed her mind. With Sardinia, Sicily and now Naples under his belt, Alphonse also tried to have a little look at the rest of Italy, particularly regarding the succession of Milan, with the death of Filippo Maria Visconti in 1447. But it was way too messy for him, and when Francesco Sforza took the duchy in 1452, Alphonse settled into the north-south divide. He died in 1458 and left a stable kingdom to his son, Ferdinand or Ferrante, who got only the kingdom of Naples and not the rest of the Spanish holdings. The poor guy had only just started to settle in when he had to face a rebellion by the barons of the realm and an invasion by Jean of Anjou, since the French Angevins were pretenders to the throne, something to keep in mind as we head into the modern age and the Italian wars. Despite an early defeat against Jean, Ferrante eventually managed to consolidate his rule. He later participated in the above-mentioned war against the Malatesta, along with the Pope and other allies, and later turned against the Pope when he started going too far. In 1478, the king supported the Pazzi conspiracy against the Medici of Florence, and then the Pazzi War, which saw Florence attacked by Naples, the Papal States, and Federico da Montefeltro but Ferrante would give in to Lorenzo the Magnificent's diplomatic efforts and would leave the coalition against Florence. This was also because very soon he would face a very real threat to the integrity of his kingdom with the Ottoman invasion of Otranto. He would manage to get the city back relatively quickly, thanks also a bit to the rather unenthusiastic help of the other Italian allies. As his end drew near, he associated his son, Alphonse, to the throne, which immediately provoked the rebellion of the barons again, which was again put down. Ferdinando Ferrante of Naples died in 1494, and it was his succession that would spark the invasion of Italy by French king Charles VIII. As we left the kingdom of Naples and headed north, we crossed into the Papal States' territory. We started there from Pope Martin V, who became Pope in 1417, putting an end to the Great Western Schism. One of his first tasks was to consolidate the territory. In the north, for example, where the pesky and rebellious Bologna was always, well, rebelling peskily. The Pope's other big issue was closer to home the mercenary captain-turned-lord Braccio da Montone. 
The Pope tried to get two birds with one stone, or as we say in Italian, two pigeons with one fava bean, and he sent Braccio against Bologna. Although the situation remained generally sketchy until Braccio's death in battle in 1424. As well as land issues, Martin also managed to sort out the papal finances and even started up some important building projects. He also managed to reach a sort of delicate balance with the internal Roman politics between the great families. This delicate balance was soon messed up when Eugene IV took over in 1431, getting himself into trouble and having to get his friend Cosimo de' Medici of Florence to bail him out. That was when the Florentine family got a really big break, obtaining the control of the Apostolic Chamber, the office that managed the papal finances. Eugene IV failed a little better when it came to facing the situation of the Council of Basel. You see, many bishops had grown to like this idea that they could get together in a council and have authority over the Pope. So they tried again, and when, of course, it turned out that Eugene was having none of that nonsense, they ended up electing an anti-Pope, the Duke of Savoy, Amadeo VIII, with the name of Felix V. Pope Eugene managed to win back some prestige when he almost negotiated an end to the East and Western Schism. Well, he negotiated it, but then it didn't last long. It lasted indeed no longer than it took the Eastern Emperor and his delegates to get back to Constantinople, but long enough for the Pope to see his position somewhat restored. Antipope Felix V would eventually back down gracefully, having gotten quite a few advantages out of the whole situation. When Eugene IV died in 1447, the same year as Filippo Maria Visconti of Milan, he was followed by the relatively peaceful Nicholas V, who steered the boat up to 1455, when a certain Alfonso Borja, which in Italian became Borgia, took over, really hitting the accelerator on the whole practice of papal nepotism. Interestingly for our future story, he also made one of his nephews cardinal in 1456, and then vice-chancellor, a position of great influence and power. The nephew in question, now eligible to become Pope, was Rodrigo Borgia. Pius II, from 1458 to 1464, was the one under whom the precious and controversial papal alum mines were discovered, and he also tried to launch another crusade, which fell flat just as it was about to leave due to his death. His successor, Paul II, was the one who got involved in the whole Rimini issue against the Malatesta, in which a coalition sided with the Pope to defeat the House of Rimini, but then turned against the Pope when he wanted to go too far. The next Pope was a biggie, Sixtus IV, he of the growing clash with the Medici of Florence and supporter of the Patsy conspiracy. We then ended our visit with the Popes, with Innocent VIII, who died in 1492, and was succeeded by Rodrigo Borgia, Pope Alexander VI. Moving north from the Papal States took us into Tuscany, where we started off by taking a look at the Crypto Signoria, the shadow lordship of Cosimo de' Medici, as he consolidated the family's banking business and hold on power 
without actually taking office, but through financial means and influencing the Signoria, the government of the city-state of Florence. He was also helped by his marriage to Contessina of the important Bardi banking family. He faced the opposition of the noble Albizzi, who managed to get him exile after attempting to poison him while in prison. When he came back, it was for good, and the Medici power was not questioned again until Cosimo's death in 1464. Meanwhile, he skillfully opposed the constant threat of Milan until his friend Francesco Sforza became Duke in 1452, and he got close to the Pope, gaining control of the papal finances. He was among the first of the family to really invest in art and architecture, helping to kick off the awakening Renaissance and promoting artists such as Donatello and funding the construction of the Dome of the Duomo Florence. Cosimo had two sons, Giovanni and Piero, but Giovanni died early on and the sickly and bookish Piero took over the family and Florence after Cosimo's death. Cosimo, knowing that his son may not have lasted long, spent a lot of time grooming his grandson for power, Lorenzo. Nevertheless, Piero did a decent job managing the situation from 1464 to 1469. It was in that year that Lorenzo, who would be known as the Magnificent, took over the, took over the family, assisted by his brother Giuliano. Although Lorenzo would have preferred to write poetry and talk of philosophy with his friends in the countryside, he took on the role with a sense of duty. Another great interest of his was his lover, Lucrezia Donati, an interest he pursued all the way up to his marriage to a Roman noblewoman, Clarice Orsini, and possibly also afterwards. So Lorenzo settled into the seat of power, being a good armchair general, running things from his desk with shrewd politics, able diplomacy, while all the time running the family bank. He eventually managed to reach a delicate balance between the main Italian powers at the time, Florence, Venice, Milan, the Papal States and the Kingdom of Naples, but not before he had a serious run-in with Pope Sixtus IV. Moves and counter-moves, stepping on toes and financial trip-ups would eventually lead to Pope Sixtus supporting his nephew Girolamo Riario and the Pazzi banking family of Florence in an attempt on the lives of Lorenzo and his brother Giuliano. Giuliano was indeed killed, but Lorenzo managed to escape. War between Florence on one side and the Pope, Naples and Urbino on the other ensued, but Lorenzo managed to pull off a diplomatic masterpiece, peeling Naples away from the coalition and leaving the Pope high and dry. The Ottoman conquest of Otranto in the Kingdom of Naples sealed the deal for the end of the war. Lorenzo spent his twilight years consolidating the Italian balance of power. Lorenzo spent his twilight years consolidating the Italian balance of power and the family future, managing to get his son Giovanni made a cardinal at a ridiculously young age by Pope Innocent VIII. Both Lorenzo and the Pope died in 1492. Our next stop was up towards the northwest from Tuscany to the Genoa in the century of Christopher Columbus, or better, Cristoforo Colombo. The Superba, or the proud maritime republic, was navigating in difficult waters, due to the increasing influence of the Turks in the eastern Mediterranean and was looking more towards the Atlantic routes, up past Portugal and Spain to England. What's more, the Republic had not been fully independent now for quite a while. 
falling alternatively under the influence of the Duchy of Milan and the Kingdom of France. We mentioned that Genoa was looking elsewhere, but it was not so much the initiative of the Republic, but of Genoese individuals. We spoke of the contribution of Giovanni Longo in the defence of Constantinople, and the exploration of Africa, as well, of course, as old Christopher and his discovery of the continent over there. We also took the time to follow the trials and tribulations of his mortal remains in the centuries after his death. Continuing on our tour, we visited with the Savoy up in Piedmont. There, after a fortunate series of counts and then dukes, the dynasty went through a bit of a decline, falling increasingly under the influence of the French crown. We took an interesting look, or at least I thought it was interesting, at the story of the Holy Shroud, which may or may not have been a hoax from the Middle Ages rather than the sheet that held the body of Christ after his crucifixion. One of the potential hoaxers being Leonardo da Vinci himself. Afterwards, it was back to one of the big five, Milan. We headed back to 1447 in time to mourn the Duke Filippo Maria Visconti, the last of the Visconti line. After a five-year succession crisis in which the prominent citizens of Milan declared the Repubblica Ambrosiana, Francesco Sforza, mercenary captain and husband of the dead duke's daughter, Bianca Maria, took over as duke, took over as duke in 1452. Two years later, the five major powers reached a balance with the Peace of Lodi, and from then on things would switch from 2 versus 3 or 3 versus 2, but no major wars broke out, albeit with some battles albeit with some battles, until almost the end of the century. Francesco Sforza was succeeded in 1466 by his son, Galeazzo Maria, who almost got kidnapped in Savoy on his way back to claim his throne. After setting up a lavish and extravagant court, unless those two words mean the same thing, then pick one, he continued to try and prove his worth in battle, but never managed, also because his allies went out of their way to make sure the erratic and impulsive duke went nowhere near a battlefield. For example, in 1467, when there was a campaign against Bartolomeo Colleoni, Piero de' Medici called Galeazzo Maria to Florence just in time for him to miss the Battle of Riccardina. Galeazzo Maria continued annoying people with his highly unpopular court and politics and even ousted his own mum, Bianca Maria, until he was finally assassinated in 1476. His son, Gian Galeazzo, was placed under a regency government headed by his mother until she was ousted by the boy's uncle, Ludovico Sforza, known due to his very dark complexion and hair as Il Moro, the Moor. When his nephew in the end died, it would be Il Moro to take over as duke and one of those who would take most of the blame for the chaos which was about to rain down on the Italian peninsula. Our next stop took us to the relatively new location on our travels, Trentino. We did a very general overview of the area of Trentino, one of the northern regions of Italy, and saw its transformation in the early 11th century into a semi-independent principality run by a bishop prince, whose influence and power would wax and wane, I never remember which of those two means get bigger or get smaller, according to their own skills and the surrounding political situation. In particular, we spoke a little bit about Bishop Counts Federico Vanga and George of Liechtenstein before mentioning the period in which southern Trentino was dominated by Venice. Which brings us round, once again, to the Most Serene Republic. 
the 15th century would be a century of growing splendor as the city expanded and modernized and the government consolidated its system of checks and balances with the merchant oligarchy exercising power through the institution of the Maggior Consiglio. However, there were challenges. For example, West from Milan, or early in the century versus the Padua of the Dacarrara, whom Venice defeated in 1405, and from the north from the Kingdom of Hungary, to whom Venice lost the war, ending in 1413. 1416 saw the Venetians push back the Ottoman threat for half a century with their victory at the Battle of Gallipoli in 1416. This would keep the Turks in check until around the 1460s, but from then on, it would be on and off war for centuries to come. The 1420s saw the clash with Milan heat up again until it cooled down with the Peace of Lodi in 1454. The end of the century saw Venice attempt to take the Duchy of Ferrara, in the Salt War, but it was opposed by a coalition of Florence and Naples, among others, and at the end of the two-year conflict, Venice had managed to gain some land, but not their original aim of Ferrara. Having mentioned the War of Ferrara from different angles, we took some time to see how the Este family came from the provincial town of Este and managed to take Ferrara, creating a duchy there in 1471 under Duke Borso, which also included the cities of Modena and Reggio Emilia. We also had a quick look at the mercenary captain turned Duke of Urbino, Federico da Montefeltro, as he took over the duchy after the assassination of his younger stepbrother in suspicious circumstances to then become a military legend and one of the great princes of the Italian Renaissance before he died of malaria in 1482 during the above-mentioned War of Ferrara or Salt War. Speaking of dying, we then rounded off the Middle Ages with a look at daily life, death and sex in that period. And that wraps it up for a History of Italy podcast for the Middle Ages. So, my dear listener, you and I are finally, finally ready to head off into the modern age. Will you come along with me for a bit longer? Thank you very much for listening and thank you for your patience in the erratic schedule in this period. We're almost there with the house reconstruction. Remember, if you're so inclined, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, you can click through to our support page and become a patron on Patreon and have access to extra content as well as ad-free episodes. Thank you again very much for listening. And until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. 
and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.